Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Hello, thank you for joining me this Monday, January 16th. It is, of course, the day we honor Martin Luther King with a federal holiday. That means a lot of the banks are closed. Um, Certain businesses may close. Certain businesses may choose to be open. This, as with many of our newer holidays, um, it's not across the board. Federal buildings definitely closed. Uh, A lot of organizations are closed today. So if there's somewhere you're planning to go, you uh, should double check before you leave the house. It is a day when we have been asked by various civil rights organizations to try to do something. This isn't just a day to contemplate, contemplate. It is a day to think of an action. Think of one thing that you can do to make the world a better place. Um, there is, I'm going to see if I can find it again, because you know I do a lot of my reading in the morning, and sometimes if I don't bookmark something, um, one of the places where um, I was reading about Martin Luther King and his history, they listed a bunch of books that you could read that have to do with just the whole um, racial justice movement. Some of the books about Martin Luther King specifically, I am going to uh, go through all of my notes and I'm going to try to get that link to the books that you could maybe pick up today. And if you really want to be helpful, if you're going to order something from a bookstore Maybe you make a little bit of an effort to find a black-owned bookstore to order your books from. But at the very least, it has to be an independent bookstore, okay? Um, so Martin Luther King. I was, I went on YouTube and I was listening to some of his more famous and some of his lesser-known speeches. And I was reminded how even though he was, he was really hated during his lifetime. He was a rabble rouser. He was a troublemaker. He upset the status quo. But he wasn't motivated by hate. If you listen to speech after speech after speech, he talks about fighting for racial equity, but fighting for it with love in your heart. He talks about loving your enemies. In in one of the speeches, you know, he's talked about if if somebody is hating on you and you hate back, it just becomes a cycle and you never get anywhere. But if you answer that hate with love, you have at least the opportunity to change the direction of the conversation. You can make some progress. That's what he felt. Uh, You can go and you can hear excerpts from his speeches on YouTube. If you want to, if that's easier than ordering. Um, Once I find this list of books, um, I'm going to 
tweet out the link to the list of uh, books that you can read to honor this day. But there are, in all the speeches I listened to, there were some that just gave me chills, made me understand the pain and the patience of this man. The day before he was assassinated, Martin Luther King's final speech was that I've been to the mountaintop speech. He was talking to um, workers. They were in a church to hear him, but they were workers who had been protesting working conditions. It was April 3rd, 1968 at the Mason Temple in Memphis, Tennessee. He, in this speech, went over the things that he had spent talking about in almost every speech, that African Americans needed to be united and the importance that protests be nonviolent. Some also, in looking back over it, notice that it's, it's kind of creepily prophetic. He almost seems to be telling the audience that he understands that his time on this earth is going to be very short. It really, it really kind of gives you chills. Uh, at the end of the day today, I'm going to share with you a clip from a speech that I had forgotten. The one, you know, uh, sometimes I quote Dr. King that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. Usually I use that quote when I'm frustrated that something that needs to happen isn't happening fast enough. And I try to remember that over time with our stops and starts, We do become a better people, I think, over time. We have some real challenges right now. But I really do believe that. At the the end of the day today, in the 4.30 to 5 o'clock hour, I'm going to play you something from that speech. But right now, here at the beginning, as we honor Martin Luther King, as we talk about his work and how he wanted change to come And he knew you had to protest and be civilly disobedient to bring about that change. But he always wanted it done peacefully, even when the people reacting to it were not themselves peaceful. You may remember parts of this speech. Listen to I've been to the mountaintop. All we say to America is be true to what you said on paper. If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they haven't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read 
of the freedom of speech, somewhere I read, of the freedom of press, somewhere I read, that the greatness of America is the right to protest far right. So just as I say we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around, we aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. The work Martin Luther King did has not been finished, but it has changed our country. Ask Hakeem Jeffries, the current leader of the Democrats in Congress, one of the people who has benefited from work that was not started but continued by Martin Luther King. We're going to take a break and be back with Hakeem Jeffries and some other news of the day right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. It is Monday, January 16th. It is the day we set aside each year to honor Martin Luther King. As I said, in the 4.30 to 5 hour, I'm going to be playing another clip from another one of his amazing speeches. What an orator. And even though the work obviously isn't done Um, We have made strides. The current Democratic leader in Congress is an African-American man, Hakeem Jeffries. And uh, he has proven himself to be every bit as articulate a spokesperson. Most of the time he talks about Democrats and what they've been doing. He um, last Wednesday, you know, the Republicans have just been wreaking havoc in the House of Representatives since they showed up. And, you know, Kevin McCarthy, he thinks he's like some big wave surfer. (laughs) And he doesn't realize that that wave is going to kill him. It is going to grab him and grind him into the seafloor. But for now, he thinks he's riding high. Um, we're, it's a mess. Congress is a mess. It's going to be a mess. 
Later today in the four o'clock hour, I'm going to talk to Terry Savage. You're probably hearing about the debt ceiling and how Janet Yellen uh, is sounding the alarm and she's trying to um, arrange things because it looks like for the first time in our history, history, we're not going to raise the debt ceiling and we may start defaulting. This has enormous consequences. And the radical right members of Kevin McCarthy's party who are in charge of this, they think that the Democrats are going to blink and they're going to um, finally agree to like huge cuts in Medicare, huge cuts in Social Security. President Biden has said, no, it ain't going to happen. So we're at a potentially very dangerous place. So um, what did the Republicans do last week? Oh, they um, they passed some crazy rules that they're going to live by. Um, And on Wednesday of last week, when this statement from Hakeem Jeffries was made, they were trying to pass what would amount to a federal ban on abortion. The vast majority of the people in this country believe that a woman should control her own body and any medical decisions that need to be made should be made between a woman and her doctor and anybody else she chooses to include, but the government should not have a seat at that table. Luckily, because we control the Senate and because President Biden has a veto pen, we should be able to contain most of these crazy ideas, but they have voted to make it more difficult to vote to raise the debt ceiling. Hakeem Jeffries last Wednesday, stood before the House of Representatives. He criticized Republicans for what they were doing and who they were. And then he told the audience if they had any doubts who the Democrats were, he was going to make sure we understood that as well. Listen to this. On Monday, you pass a bill designed to allow the wealthy, the well-off, and the well-connected to cheat on their taxes, subsidize the lifestyles of the rich and shameless, benefit millionaires and billionaires, not working class families, not middle class families, not low income families, not veterans, not everyday Americans, the wealthy, the well off and the well connected. That was on Monday. Then on Tuesday, you come to the floor and you pass a select committee on insurrection protection. A committee that is clearly designed, in the words of some of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle, to obstruct justice as part of your evident desire, as many of you have said, to eventually defund the FBI. That was Tuesday. And now on Wednesday, you come to the floor. Nothing on inflation. Nothing on quality of life issues for the American people. Nothing even on public safety. But you come to the floor as part of your march to criminalize abortion care, to impose a nationwide ban, to set into motion government-mandated pregnancies. So that's the distinction for today. As Democrats, we believe in a woman's freedom to make her own reproductive health care decisions, period, Full stop. A decision that should be between a woman, her family, 
and her doctors. Period. Full stop. We believe in Roe v. Wade. You wonder about our position? That's it. The Women's Health Protection Act. That's it. Freedom to make your own reproductive health care decisions. That's it. That's it. There you go. That's who we are. Hakeem Jeffries, remember, in the vote for Speaker of the House, except for one vote where one Democrat had to leave late at night because in the early morning he was having some outpatient surgery, and then he was back the next day after his outpatient procedure. Every single vote, every single Democrat was present and united. Every single vote they took, they voted for Hakeem Jeffries. 212, 212, 212. These are not legislators who are going to look at the tantrum thrown by the far right in a refusal to raise the debt ceiling, and they're not going to capitulate. The Republicans in Congress, who are supposedly more middle of the road, are going to have to do some real soul-searching in a relatively short amount of time. Because they're going to have to decide whether or not they're willing to bring the economy of this country. Military people aren't going to get paid if we don't raise the debt ceiling. It isn't just like Social Security folks who might not see a check. We're talking about the armed forces. We're talking about the government's ability to borrow money. It's going to be gone. Terry Savage is really good at explaining complicated issues in ways that I can understand. Like I said, she will be here at 4 o'clock to explain all the ramifications of this. But this is, you know, the radical the radical right believes that it can cow the rest of the Republicans in Congress. And so far, they've been right. Despite the grumbling and the grunting, so far, the radical right has been correct. You know, supposedly a bunch of people went to Kevin McCarthy and they're like, we're not going to let you give the store away. But did they do anything publicly? No. Did they say anything publicly? No. We'll see how much they're willing to take from the radical right. I hope they can find their spines somewhere lost, drifting inside their bodies. It's going to be ugly, kids, and it's going to happen this week. So um, before we go for a break, one other thing that um, I want to remind you, you know, we've got the Merrill Forum coming up. In, geez, Louise, about a week and a half, uh, January 26th, Thursday, noon to two. We are going to carry it, of course, on our air, but um, we're going to be downtown. And I am all this week, every day this week, I'm going to be giving away a pair of tickets to come live in person to our mayoral forum. It is Thursday, January 26th at Morning Star Auditorium that's across from Daly Plaza in Chicago. Okay? 
If you are the third caller, 773-763-9278, then you will get a pair of tickets to show up live Thursday, January 26th at Morningstar Auditorium, again, across from Daly Plaza in Chicago. All nine candidates have confirmed their participation and this is your chance to hear directly from those folks. And uh, not only that, lunch will be provided. At 11 a.m., there is going to be a lunch. So if you are the third caller, make sure you tell uh, Paul Shavari what your dietary restrictions might be. Uh, lunch is going to be at 11. The forum begins at noon. Me, Santita Jackson, and Patty Vasquez are going to be the moderators. The forum on WCPT and online on our website and on the TuneIn Radio app is sponsored by Morningstar, Roofers Local 11, a local 11, and Oscar Iberian Rugs. A little uh, legalese here. Contests running on WCPT 820 are open to listeners 18 years of age or older, residents of the greater Chicagoland, northwest Indiana area, one entry per person, one winner per household, void where prohibited by law. Listeners may only win or qualify to win once every 30 days. Complete rules are available on our website. Go to WCPT820.com and click on a tab that says contest. Right now, the third caller is going to get a pair of tickets to come live and if you do, please uh, come on over and say hello to me and Santita and Patty. We will be there January 26th at the Morningstar Auditorium. Back with more after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Our neighbor to the north has an election coming up. Remember how we talked day after day after day? When the uh, Supreme Court seats needed to be filled here in the state of Illinois, and we talked about how incredibly important that was and how we really had to make sure we got judges in those seats that weren't going to undo all the good that our legislation legislators were doing. Yeah, same things happening in Wisconsin. They also have an election for Supreme Court coming up. I thought it would be a great day to talk to Dan Schaefer. You know him from his Substack, the Recombobulation area. Dan joins us now. Hello, Dan. How are you? Doing well, Joan. How are you? I am. Um, I'm doing pretty well for a Monday. You know, sometimes I feel a little out of phase on Mondays till I get back in the saddle again. Um, but today, maybe it's maybe it's because I spent the morning listening to Martin Luther King's speeches. I feel pretty focused and pretty motivated today. Are you doing anything special uh, to honor the day? Uh, I spent the morning at the uh, Martin Luther King celebration that we have every year in Milwaukee. Uh, they had uh, a number of speakers, including uh, Senator Baldwin, Governor Tony Evers, and our mayor, Kevlar Johnson, County Executive David Crowley. Uh, so it was quite the event. Uh, some moving performances from uh, some young folks as well. So uh, lots uh, lots of ways to celebrate here in Milwaukee. Um, I didn't hear you mention Ron Johnson. Was he not there? <laughs> he, 
He was not. Uh, no surprise oh, there. I'm shocked. He was, a couple of years ago, he was at our Juneteenth celebration in Milwaukee, and he literally got booed out of the street. So uh, he didn't. Uh, he didn't make it to this one. He's keeping a low profile today. I guess so. I guess so. So you guys have a at least an initial ballot for Supreme Court justices coming up uh, February 21st, correct? That's right. The, uh, the This race, I cannot overstate the importance of this race for Wisconsin Supreme Court. It is a race for a 10-year term, uh, and we are now just about five weeks away uh, from the primary. So no breaks in Wisconsin really ever uh, when it comes yeah. to uh, when it comes to voting and having to vote to save our democracy or, or restore our democracy, uh, in this case, the court has been in conservative control for quite some time. Uh, right now, it is a 4-3 conservative court in the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Uh, the former Chief Justice Patience Rogensack, who is a conservative, is retiring. Uh, she's 83. And it is uh, the best chance that liberals have had in Wisconsin to change control of this court for quite some time. Uh, and that would open up challenges to our ridiculously gerrymandered maps. It would open up challenges to our ridiculously outdated 1849 abortion ban. And it would open up a whole host of changes uh, to the way the courts operate here in the state of Wisconsin. So it is huge. It is an absolutely mammoth election that we are having here. Now, I know that the court is supposed to be nonpartisan, but we all know that there are two Democratic sort of progressive justice uh, people running. And there are two very conservative people running. Talk to us about the four candidates, who they are and what they stand for. Yeah, so the, the four candidates uh, are uh, the two conservatives are Jennifer Doro and Daniel Kelly. Daniel Kelly uh, was a former Wisconsin Supreme Court justice. He was appointed by Scott Walker. Uh, but when he was uh, up for election for that full 10-year term, uh, he lost pretty handily. So he is a pretty far-right justice. Uh, he is um, backed by a lot of Uline money. Uh, I was just going to say, isn't he the candidate? I believe the Uline said publicly that they would spend millions. They would spend millions on him. Yep, that's right. And uh and so he is, you know, he, he is a very far right, very, uh, you know, Trump supporter type of candidate. Um, and the other conservative is Jennifer Doro. Uh, she was also appointed to her spot in the Waukesha courts uh, by Scott Walker. Uh, she is a conservative as well. She recently had a kind of a, a circumstance where she became kind of in the national spotlight a little bit, uh, presiding over a trial, the trial for the uh, the man who drove his car into the Waukesha Christmas parade uh, a couple of years ago. So she ruled uh, on that case and that, you know, kind of raised her profile uh, in the state. And after that case, she decided to uh, make the run into this race. Uh, she is also someone who is, she and Kelly, interestingly enough, uh, both went to Regent uh, Law School. 
which is um, a, was formerly called Christian Broadcasting Network College, Christian Broadcasting Network University, founded by Pat Robertson. Uh, so there's some pretty far-right views among those two, uh, Daniel <sighs> Kelly and Jennifer Dora, who are running. Uh, and then we have the two liberal justices. We have our liberal candidates for the justice, uh, Janet Protasiewicz, uh, who is probably uh, the most likely candidate to emerge of the two. Uh, she is a Milwaukee County judge. And then there is also Everett Mitchell, uh, who is a Dane County judge. He's also a pastor as well. Uh, so a pretty interesting field, uh, you know, coming up to that February 21st primary. Uh, it's going to be interesting to see which two candidates will emerge from that and, and go forward to the general election. You know, uh, a week later in Chicago is the mayoral race. And what they do there is there's a field of a certain number of candidates. And if nobody gets 50 percent, then the top two vote getters go on to the runoff in in April. What if when uh, on February 21st, what if one of the three candidates, say, garners 60 percent of the vote? Would there still be a runoff in April? There's, there's, it is the, just the top two candidates will be, will be going. So no matter what. No matter, no matter what. Correct. Yeah. And then it is April 4th. The general election will be, will be April 4th. And that, that is, once the primaries, I don't know, I think there's a lot of people who are, you know, kind of waiting to endorse, especially on the left, uh, among, you know, who, uh, is going to emerge from that primary. Um, and, uh, I think once, you know, once the votes are counted on February 21st, uh, then we will uh, we'll see a, just a flood of attention and money and advertising and all sorts of things uh, that will be uh, flooding the state of Wisconsin for this race because this is just just a it, just a huge race uh, because the, there's been challenges to our our gerrymandered maps there's been challenges to the uh, 1849 abortion law here uh, both of those I think are going to be top top issues I attended a public forum last week uh, with the four candidates it was held in Madison and you know those those two are some, some of the biggest questions there and I think uh, particularly on the gerrymandering question uh, you know we we see so often in the state of Wisconsin that we have, uh, like just this most recent election, Tony Evers won by three and a half percent, which uh, has been referred to here as a Wisconsin landslide. Uh, uh, Only in Wisconsin. Only in Wisconsin. That's right. But even so, the the legislature was able to get very close to a two thirds supermajority, even though the Democratic governor won by three and a half percent. So those maps are clearly way out of line. uh, And I thought... uh, well, the Milwaukee County Judge Janet Protasiewicz came right out and said those maps are rigged. They are unfair. Uh, they do not reflect uh, the people of the state of Wisconsin. So I thought that was a really strong response and a really important issue uh, that I covered at that public forum last week. Dan, I'm talking to Dan Schaefer of the Recombobulation Area. You should uh, read his writing on Substack. Dan, what do you think the chances are that the two progressives could be the ones on the ballot against one another in April? Is I know there's a chance. What would you put the odds at? I'd say that's pretty unlikely, you know, given the profile of the two candidates on the right. You know, Kelly being a former state Supreme Court justice and Doro having that star turn uh, as uh in 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 the uh, Waukesha parade, 
case. Uh, so I think, you know, people know them. They're, you know, the Republicans are not they know the importance of this one uh, just as much as we do. Uh, so they're, you know, they're going to be focused on this as well. But I think there, there is kind of some lingering infighting on the right from some of the, you know, some, some of what happened in the midterms last year. Remains to be seen exactly how that's going to play out in this race. I know when Doro entered the race, there were some saying that Kelly should drop out. Uh, that he should, uh, you know, they should all rally behind the one candidate. That didn't happen. Uh, you know, it's it, and then, you know, Kelly has the Uline money behind him. So are they going to jump into the primary at all? Who's his profile? Uh, you know, I think there are some, there are some, uh, there's, there's a real, uh, you know, kind of uh, contentious energy on the right uh, within this race in Wisconsin right now. And I think on the left, you know, I think the Janet Protasiewicz came out last week and they they announced that she uh, she set an off year fundraising record for a Wisconsin Supreme Court. So I think that mm-hmm. is, you know, a real sign that she has a lot of support behind her right now, as does Everett Mitchell. But I, I in terms of the fundraising, I'd expect her number to be ahead of maybe all of them, maybe ahead of the entire field. What we saw a lot in Illinois this last election were in Republican primaries, there would be a more moderate Republican, sometimes even an incumbent from the state legislature, and a more far-right, more MAGA, more radical. And time and time again, surprisingly, the more far-right. Well, heck, for governor, Darren Bailey is not exactly a middle-of-the-road candidate, and he was the one the party chose to lead the banner in the race for governor. And yet... Candidates who are that far right have trouble attracting those voters in the middle and the independent voters who they need to actually win in a general election. So even, well, like you say, well, I guess we'll have to see if the Uline money pours in um, before the 21st for the primary. But even if a, a Daniel Kelly is able to survive against Jennifer Doro, is he too far right for the state of Wisconsin as a whole? I think he is. And I think if he were to win the the primary ahead of Doro, I think Democrat, the liberal candidate would be in a better position uh, to win the general election in April. I think, you know, it's it, it, I think it'll be very easy. Uh, not easy, but it, it's Wisconsin. Everything's a hard-fought race, but it would be yeah, really comparatively easy. You know, winning by more than half a percentage point. Well, I think, and I, th- and I think, you know, because of a race like this that is happening in the spring, you know, it is a race for a for a seat that not a whole lot of people always pay attention to, uh, and I think name recognition just to simply can be a big factor for this. And Jennifer Doro, you know, after she was on TV news every night for a month uh, presiding over the Daryl Brooks case and the Waukesha Parade Massacre, uh, you know, a lot of people have a pretty positive opinion of her from that. Uh, Now, there are, of course, many things that will come up during the course of the campaign that may change people's views of her, uh, you know, as these things unfold. But I think just the simple name recognition, you know, not everybody knows the state Supreme Court candidates. Not everybody follows this as close as you and I do, Joan. Uh, so, you know, which is always shocking to me. 
<laughs> exactly. Uh, so it's, you know, it's, I think that is going to be uh, a distinct factor as well. And I think, you know, I think Doro uh, might be, have a better chance be, just because of that name recognition that she gained through that trial and the positive impression that people had from her then. But at the same time, you know, I went into that forum last week really interested to see how she would be, uh, you know, as a candidate. And she spent much of the forum reading notes from a binder that she had, reading that verbatim, uh, not really being able to kind of speak off the cuff about the issues that the uh, the journalists were asking her about. So I went into that thinking that maybe she would be, you know, emerge as a real formidable front runner, maybe even uh, for that race. And I left thinking that maybe her star had dimmed a little bit, maybe that she was not the uh, formidable candidate that uh, that she initially seemed to be. She played it extremely safe. She was reading it. You know, she had this binder in front of her that she was reading from that was very, you know, it created quite the contrast from the other candidates who did not have uh, a circumstance like that. So, it was, you know, it's, hard, it's really hard to say. Uh, where things are going to go for her. Um, You know, first time really stepping into the political arena like this. Uh, So we'll see. Did her campaign give any explanation for it? Like she has stage fright or she's, you know, new to being in the public eye or I mean, because that's weird. I'm sorry, Dan, but that's kind of weird. I, I I thought it was pretty weird as well, especially after you know she was on the t- on TV news in Mil- in the in the area here in Milwaukee uh, every night of that trial. Gave a ton of interviews after it. Gave a lot of interviews, you know, when she announced, and then she gets to this forum and it's these very rehearsed uh, answers, and she's very plays it very safe and didn't want to uh, didn't seem to want to really say anything substantive uh, on any question and i'm more of a you know i'm more i I think it's fair to criticize on substance more than style uh but there was not much substance to criticize and i thought it was a little strange that she kept uh, going back to the binder over and over again uh throughout that public forum wow interesting i'm speaking with dan schaefer he writes the recombobulation area on substack uh he is an expert in all things wisconsin politics we are going to continue this discussion right after a break. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. And I'm joined by Dan Schaefer, who writes the recombobulation area. He reports on all things politics in Wisconsin. We have been talking about the state Supreme Court race, a race that not only will fill an empty seat, but will decide... Um, whether this is a conservative or a more progressive court going forward. The primary is February 21st. April 4th will be the top two vote getters. And uh, the implications for the next decade in Wisconsin cannot be overstated. A couple of more things, um, Dan, I want to ask you about. First of all, is it my imagination or has... Um, has Mr. Johnson been fairly quiet since the midterm election? I haven't seen a lot of, um, you know, gargle with Listerine for COVID or any of his other kinds of, of crazy things. I know he feels much maligned and he feels that journalists especially are trying to smear him. But he um, is it is it my imagination? Have, have I missed a couple of things I should have paid attention to? 
Well, in terms of any actual legislating, uh, that's not really John, Ron Johnson's forte. He's not uh, trying to, you know, work together with the other tri- side to try to get any bills passed, uh, like our other senator here in Wisconsin, Tammy Baldwin. Uh, but but uh, our senior senator, Ron Johnson, was was on Meet the Press yesterday talking about Hunter Biden, you know, the uh, the top. And didn't, isn't all. that also where he said there was a smear campaign against him? Yeah, I think he talked about he likes to talk about how the media is against him all the time and, and has these combative interviews. And Chuck Todd, who I, I would not exactly say is the most, uh, you know, uh, in your face type of journalist or anything like that. Chuck uh, Todd won't even ask a follow up question, let alone hold anybody's feet to the fire. I mean, I, well, I don't understand how Chuck Todd keeps that job. He has to be one of the most reviled people on network television. But I digressed, and I'm sorry. That's my little Chuck Todd rant. I think he's an idiot. Well, I think it, it's interesting you say that because of all people that Ron Johnson seems to have a hard time with, Chuck Todd is high on that list because he <laughs> seems to think Chuck Todd's having an argument with him. I would not say he's not the hardest-hitting interview uh, in the world right now. So Ron Johnson likes to – he's on talk radio, conservative talk radio in Wisconsin all the time, uh, really all the time. Uh, and he, uh, you know, once he gets out of that talk ra- conservative talk radio bubble, uh, he has a more difficult time answering some questions. But, no, we haven't heard a whole lot from him, and I, I don't imagine we will hear much from him. He doesn't actually get much done. He just likes to go on talk radio, go on conservative media, uh, yell about, uh, you know, people who are opposed to him. You know, he's doing some sort of anti-vax thing. But he's he's not a real decision maker in the Senate. He doesn't get much done. I think even when there was a, you know, even when there was the, you know, kind of conservative trifecta in government with in, in 2016, uh, you know, Tammy Baldwin got more bills passed than uh, than uh, Ron Johnson did, even when it was a conservative and were Republican majority. So, you know, he's kind of just a just your crazy uncle who you have to put up with. And but he's not actually going to, you know, do anything substantive uh, on really any issues uh, in Wisconsin or in the Senate. After the midterms, um, in the weeks after, when everybody does the postmortems of of what happened and why it happened. What would you say um, the take is on the top reasons why Mandela Barnes couldn't quite pull it out? Yeah, I think, well, I think it is first important to remember that he did better than a lot of people expected him to. Uh, Mm -hmm. He definitely outperformed the polls uh, that had, you know, the polls had him down kind of somewhere between, you know, four and seven percent, something like that. He ended up winning by about or losing by about one percent, only about twenty-seven thousand votes. So it was a remarkably close race, the closest rate, closest race for Senate in in the state of Wisconsin in more than a century. Uh, so it was, you know, we have a lot of close elections here too. So I think that's significant. Uh, but I think you know there, there's so many different things that you could point to. It's no one reason that Mandela Barnes uh, did not eventually uh, emerge victorious from that race. You know, I thought I, I, I thought going into it that the, any Democrat's best chance, not just Mandela Barnes, but any Democrat's best chance of winning that race is really to make it a referendum on Ron Johnson. And I'm not totally sure they 100 percent were able to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was so much of the race, uh, you know, focused on 
um, you know, Mandela Barnes's views on things like cash bail or, you know, just various comments that he had made, um, you know, over the years. But it was not the right, you know, and so they spend a lot of time uh, defending, you know, defending those or, or kind of pushing back in different ways. Um, but it was it was not, uh, you know, the type of comprehensive case to make this race a referendum on Ron Johnson that I think uh, that they could have. But then at the same time, they came so close. They just came agonizingly close uh, to pulling off the upset in this race. And, um, you know, it's it's going to be a tough one that's going to be uh, stinging for people for quite some time. And um, if you needed to know why a Supreme Court is so important. It's when you've got a legislature that's off the rails, sometimes the only way to fix it is through legal action. Talk about this vote that Republicans took in the state legislature that, again, allows therapists or social workers or counselors to implement what is referred by most people as conversion therapy. This idea that if only you can fix a gay person, you can make them straight. And Republicans in Wisconsin voted to allow it yet again. Yeah, it's just ridiculous. So Governor Evers, uh, our Democratic governor here in Wisconsin, banned uh, conversion therapy uh, during his first term. And there is a committee in the state legislature in Wisconsin. It's the, more or less the rules committee. Uh, but it is where Republicans in Wisconsin take the, the issues that are so extreme that they can't even get them through their ridiculously gerrymandered legislature. They put them off to this weird rules committee that called the Joint Committee for uh, – I, I forget that's the whole thing – J-C-R-A-R is the acronym for it. Uh, but it is a committee that they last week uh, held a vote, and it was a 6-4 Republican vote uh, that they unbanned conversion therapy. And this is something that goes around the normal legislative process, so it's not the type of thing that Tony Evers could conceivably veto. Uh, so it, it just becomes a rule because the Rules Committee voted on it. Uh, it's, it's very frustrating, and I think you know some Democratic legislators – uh, leaders in the, uh, the state Senate were who were on that committee uh, really sounded the alarm saying, hey, Tony Evers is trying to, you know, he just won re-election and he has pledged uh, in all of his speeches. The inauguration was just a couple weeks ago. Uh, his pledge to work together with the other party to try and find solutions. We got a whole host of issues uh, that we got to deal with here in Wisconsin. We've got a budget fight uh, coming up. And, you know, right as Right at the beginning, one of the first actions that the Republicans take in this new legislature is to unban conversion therapy, something that the uh, the governor tried to ban in his last term. It is, you know, just typical, typical Wisconsin Republicans uh, uh, at it again. It's just it's just so it's just so sad. Um, Based on what we know now, I mean, as you said, there are five weeks before this uh, race to uh, narrow the field down to two people to vie for the Supreme Court opening. There has been one candidate form. Are there going to be others, Dan? I I imagine that there will be. uh, You know, I know a couple of the, uh, you know, there were candidate forums, you know, kind of among liberal or activist groups and things like that, conservative groups. I imagine there will be uh, something more coming uh, over the next few weeks. Uh, but I will certainly be 
keeping a close eye on all the issues uh, with this race over at the recombobulation area. Uh, And I imagine this race is going to get a whole lot of attention because Wisconsin is the swingiest of swing states. (laughs) And once once we have two candidates, I imagine there will be a liberal candidate and a conservative candidate to emerge on February 21st. Then we are just going to get an absolute flood of money. I think that political article that you mentioned um, that uh, really outlined how much uh, money is is set to drop in Wisconsin once that happens, and and it's not only uh, you know the spring election here is a nonpartisan race. It's not only the state supreme court. There is a, a very key state senate race uh, in the Milwaukee suburbs that could determine whether or not Republicans have a supermajority in the state senate. Uh, there are a number of races in the Milwaukee Common Council. Uh, Madison will be voting on a new mayor. Uh, so there's a there's a lot to be paying attention to uh, in this spring election in Wisconsin. You have you have your hands full. We will be watching the recombobulation area and uh, would love to have you on to talk about these things as they develop. Dan, thank you. Thank you so much for having me on. Dan Schaefer, go to Substack, the recombobulation area. We're going to take a break and be back with more right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. Back a million years ago, I um, filled in at WBEZ for about six months. Yeah, it was supposed to be two weeks, turned into six months. One of the people who I really enjoyed sharing that newsroom with was Justin Kaufman, who uh, worked on one of the shows, sometimes hosted that show, and was just simply so informed and so enthusiastic and so delightful. Every day that I saw him was a good day. Justin, along with Monica Eng, now are reporters at Axios Chicago. Uh, you should sign up for that uh, daily email it is a, a really interesting and it's a really fun read. Justin Kaufman joins us now. Hello, Justin. <laughs> Hi, Joan. How are you? Thanks for the nice intro. <laughs> well, you're very welcome. And I, I have to start off by telling you uh, that the Christmas tree is still up. We are uh, now in year three or four time I mean, during the pandemic. I lost track of time. It is now year three or four of me having the Christmas tree lit for everyone's enjoyment in the front of the house, the front windows. We actually when Ray walks the dog, there are people in the neighborhood who say, are, are you from that house with the Christmas tree? So we are now famous. I, 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 I need tips. I need tips because I I had to keep my tree up uh, a week later, and in this last week, so we took all the stuff down this weekend, and this this week was horrific. I, I shut the blinds. I didn't want people to see it. I was embarrassed, but I still had my uh, my stuff up. So I need to take tips from you on how to how to get. Oh, that. honey, <laughs> do not be embarrassed. You should be proud. The only thing that I will say. When you keep it up year round, you have to constantly buy new lights because you burn them out. You know, the bulbs and the other ornaments, they're fine. But I, as a matter of fact, um, this, I'm, this weekend I made myself a note that I have to order some new bulbs. Um, because, you know, I see that there's been, there's been mass death on the Christmas tree and we simply cannot have that. 
We cannot have yeah, that. You no. It's expensive to go year round. That's what they don't <laughs> tell you. It's expensive. Well, it, well you know, it is because I decorate mine with bubble lights and, you know. Yeah. So, and, you know, you only, you don't get, um, you don't get like 40 in a package. You get like eight or nine. So you have to yeah, keep right, buying right, them. Right. I should do on one of those automatic orders every three months from Amazon. I get another box of lights. <laughs> um, anyway. The reason we reached out to you, Justin, Justin, aside from the fact that uh, the newsletter is fascinating on a daily basis, you did a really interesting roundup of the lawmakers who are leaving the state legislature, the lawmakers who are leaving Springfield. And I really wanted to talk to you about this list that you put together. Why did you do it, first off? Well, I mean, you know, there's been a lot of, uh, I think a lot of, news and, and buzz around all the people who are leaving city council in Chicago. They said these people were not running for re-election for alderman, alderperson. Uh, but not a lot of talk about what's happening in Springfield. I think there's been a, a mass exodus of people who are leaving Springfield. Obviously, uh, both the, the Senate and the House have supermajorities, Democrats. So you're going to see more turnover when people are, uh, you know, don't have to worry about their party affiliation changing in their district. But I thought, I thought that there were some big names that have been a part of Illinois political history that stepped aside uh, when the uh, General Assembly turned turned over at the beginning of January or last week. I, I'm, I'm intrigued by it because those are names we're talking about. Durkin, we're talking about Greg Harris, we're talking about Darren Bailey, we'll love him or hate him. I mean, those are people who have been a part of Illinois politics for a couple of years now that are that are moving on and, and making way for the new generation. Jim Durkin, I mean, Darren Bailey, of course, has a very high profile and we'll get to him. But I thought I thought Jim Durkin choosing to leave was very interesting. And, you know, a a couple of the lawmakers I've talked to said that in this last election cycle, they've seen a disturbing trend where, at least on the Republican side, people who they considered people they could work with, people who were willing to reach across the aisle were primaried and defeated by more radical Republicans. And the feeling was in this upcoming session, you know, how much bipartisan work would there be? And I thought um, I, I got the sense and, you know, maybe I'm projecting. Of course, I'm projecting that Jim Durkin was just tired of all the nonsense. Yeah. What's your sense of it? Yeah, and and he's not, and he's a part of a he's not well liked in his own party. Let's make that clear. I mean, when you're when you're running, when you've been the House Minority Leader for as many years as he had, been in Springfield for 22 years, you, you like if you're you're you know you're carrying water for your party, you'd like to be liked <laughs> by that party. Mm-hmm. But it, it has shifted over the last couple of years. You can you can point to Trump and and to more. Uh, a right-wing establishment Republican in, in the state of Illinois, and Jim Durkin's never really been that. Now, he's been the standard bearer for, for Republicans for years. He was the House Minority Leader through Mike Madigan, and and I'm sure he's got stories to tell about sitting in those those rooms with Mike Madigan. He also was the House Minority Leader for Bruce Rauner, the governor, and, and you know, how that all kind of played out. And so he's had a front-row seat to a lot of uh, idealistic fights between Republicans and Democrats in Springfield, but he's always been on the minority end. I mean, this has been a Democrat state for a while now. So when his party is having a, uh, I don't want to call it a revolution, but just a changing of the standard bearer and they're going more right, it, it becomes quick when you have a leadership position that it may not be uh, a, a very, what would you say, a very guarded, very... Um, 
like, like it's not a very uh, good place to be if all the people you're supposed to be representing are turning and turning into a different type of party. So Jim Durkin, yeah, I was surprised too. The only Republican who voted for the assault ban. Uh, in both chambers, that's pretty impressive, uh, you know. Yeah, took his vote and then and then walked off the left. I mean, because truly, if he was going to vote against the rest of his party on an assault weapons ban, there would be hell to pay. But in this case, he was walking off stage. It's really too bad that we seem to have reached a point in our political situation where the only time a Republican can vote their conscience, vote their beliefs is when they're right about to walk out the door uh, yeah, because right. it is it, it's it's like swallowing a poison pill. This idea that I mean, do you are you old enough to remember when there were um, Republicans who supported a woman's right to bodily autonomy? There used to be Republicans like that. Yeah, and and you think about you know the the Illinois moderate Republicans and and even some of the DuPage County Republicans who were vilified by the left for years, they were much more moderate than what we're seeing today uh, on social issues. You saw even even to an extent, Joan. I mean, Bruce Rauner ran on "I am a fiscal Republican. I don't care about social issues." A lot of uh, right wing conservative Republicans were very angry with Bruce Rauner for not taking up uh, uh, social issues when he was the governor. He was all about. I to take care of the business climate in, in Illinois. But, so they haven't really had a party that an apparatus that has been, you know, driven by social issues in the past, but they do now. And, you know, right now you have to kind of be hard pressed to see who the leadership is of this Republican party. We saw in the gubernatorial race, Darren Bailey and downstate Republicans kind of tank that mantle, but they lost and all mm-hmm. their candidates down, down ballot lost. So I'm not sure if it's the building blocks for a new party or time for the party to reassess itself, refresh and and find new leadership that uh, might be coming from people like Mary Miller, who's a who's an Illinois congresswoman who, you know, of course, was one of the uh, one of the block that just tried to stop Kevin McCarthy. Uh, You know, she might be sort of a leadership downstate Republican and people like Darren Bailey still may have some juice after losing the election. Please don't tell me. You see a situation where people are turning to Mary Miller for guidance and support. Please. I I mean, you know, it was was surprising. I mean, Illinois Republicans, you could you look at the the way that it kind of plays out in the state of Illinois and and around the country and, and what is considered a landslide and what's not. But when it was all said and done, you know, they they voted or they declared Pritzker the winner on that 701 on election night, if you remember that. I mean, it was like right away, 30 seconds in, uh, said he's got to. But when it all played out, I think the final percentage was a, was a closer than we thought, like 53-47, maybe a 54-46. It wasn't a landslide as people sort of, you know, passed off because the EDP called Pritzker at 701. So that's 47% of the state of Illinois, or, or Republicans in the state of Illinois voting for Darren Bailey. So wrap your head around that. Darren Bailey is, whether you like it or not, a, a focal point for Republicans, and that would include Mary Miller as well. I don't know about the situation with Mary Miller, but for Darren Bailey, I think it's it's sort of what I saw happening in Georgia with uh, Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker. You know, Darren Bailey and Herschel Walker were both very flawed candidates, I felt. But I think that there was there was always going to be a certain percentage of the vote they could count on simply because there are people who will vote for any Republican 
over any Democrat. The worst Republican in their eyes is better than the best Democrat. So, you know, I think I I think that because Illinois tends to be Democratic, maybe we haven't until recently seen so much of that. But I was really I was really concerned, as you know, in the runoff. Luckily, the Democrats had already won control of the Senate. So the Herschel Walker, Raphael Warnock race wasn't as make or break as it might have been, because I think that had that race determined control of the Senate. I'm afraid that more Republicans would have made the effort to get out and vote and vote for Herschel Walker, a clearly unstable, unsavory man, simply to deny Democrats that majority. I think we really were very lucky there. Well, you know, going back to Mary Miller in the state of Illinois, remember, she got redistricted. She got redistricted into Rodney Davis's district, who was an incumbent Republican, very well respected on committees. He also a conservative Republican who uh, was a co-chair for the Trump campaign in 2020, I believe it was. Uh, Now, Trump came out for Mary Miller and Mary Miller was able to go in and, and beat Rodney Davis. So it, I'll make that clear because it's not like you just like look downstate to the end of the state, you know, and say, okay, that's somebody else's business, or of course she's going to win as a Republican. She went in and beat an incumbent, powerful, and popular congressman. So that says a lot about where the Republicans are going or, or what kind of Republican uh, the, uh, voters in Illinois are voting for. I'm talking to Justin Kaufman. You should be on the mailing list for Axios Chicago. He and Monica. Eng do a bang-up job of sending out a great newsletter every morning. We have been focusing on Republicans. Justin did an article on some of the longtime lawmakers leaving Springfield. There are also some Democrats who are leaving. We are going to take a quick break, talk to Justin about some of those folks right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Justin Kaufman reports at Axios Chicago along with Monica Eng. He wrote an interesting article about longtime lawmakers leaving Springfield. We have been focusing on, you know, the Jim Durkins and the Darren Baileys of the world. But there are some Democrats who are also saying goodbye. Go ahead, uh, Justin. Talk to us about those folks. Well, one of the highest profile has to be Chicago's Greg Harris, uh, a representative who's also a majority leader in the House. Been there for 22 years for a long time. The only openly gay uh, member of the General Assembly. He was crucial in bringing gay marriage uh, equality to Illinois. Uh, he is retiring at, like I said, after 22 years. That'll be that. He he, he takes on a lot of the north side of Chicago, uh, kind of, and and that'll be missed because uh, he had been a uh, a big proponent for the LGBTQ community here in Chicago, in the state of Illinois. Patricia Van Pelt was an interesting one. She's a, a a rep on this on the west side who just kind of retired this week or last week right before i mean she, she won re-election and you see this happens a lot like, yeah, i guess i i was i saw this around the country this happened but um she won re-election in november but decided to step down before actually swearing in uh the new general assembly assembly a lot of that has to do with politics and who can uh you know appoint her as opposed to having a, an election over it but she uh is out she just kind of said she doesn't want to do politics anymore <laughs> so she yeah. uh stepped down before the uh general assembly was sworn in last wednesday uh, mike Zalewski, uh popular democrat who actually lost his primary in the 21st district back in June. Uh, he had been there for 
seven terms uh, as a state rep. He got a standing O from the uh, from the General Assembly on Tuesday night after they passed the assault weapons ban. Uh, they gave him a standing O as he walked out uh, for his last. There's also some Democrats that are. It's interesting because they're they're not in the General Assembly anymore because they've moved on to other positions because of they they went for other offices. Deb Conroy and Delia Ramirez are two great names mm-hmm. uh, when you're talking about it. Deb Conroy was. Uh, in Springfield, and she decided to be cut, to run for DuPage County Board uh, Chair, and she won, becoming the first woman to ever be the DuPage County Chair. Um, and if you're familiar with DuPage County politics, it's a lot of old white guys who have been <laughs> DuPage County Chairs over the <laughs> Which years. Which is true of a lot of political organizations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And Delia Ramirez becomes the first Latina from the Midwest to serve in Congress. She uh, did not re uh, she she run again in in the in as a representative. And then at the end, uh, Jacqueline Collins, I, you know, people know she, she retired or she, she was a long time uh, voice uh, of the South side in Chicago. She uh, was in the Senate, Senate Senator Collins decided to, to not run for reelection because she wanted uh, just, just um, what's the, I'm sorry, uh, Bobby Rush's old seat and uh, in, in the first for Congress and lost to Jonathan Jackson, Jesse Jackson's son. So she's out. So Jacqueline Collins, who was a big voice in the state Senate down in Springfield, is not returning for uh, the General Assembly. That is, I think, the 103rd, which is uh, coming up here, which just uh, sworn in on Wednesday, and they will be part of their spring session till uh, May. You know, for some of these people, um, they may be leaving um, state politics, but Sometimes I think that they want to step aside, take a break, and then go for some other office or some other role. Uh, I, you know, even the, even like a, a Jim Durkin and, uh, and Greg Harris. I mean, just because they did what they did for over two decades doesn't mean that they're not interested in doing something else. Where do you right. think, do you have any indication where any of these folks might well, be I mean, looking? It's surprising because you have a municipal election right now, which would be a, a place you would see some people who were, you know, representing Spring or Illinois and Springfield uh, try to run for real or election in Chicago. We don't see any of that. But when you're talking about people like Greg Harris or Jim Durkin, they, they, they have they have served. <laughs> you know, when you're talking about Greg Harris, it's 24 years, something like that. And um you know, they serve their, their state, and a lot of times these guys are going to the private sector. A lot of times what we see, Joan, and we know this, and this is kind of the dirty little secret, is they become lobbyists. Uh, they lobby their old, their old chambers. There have been a lot of ethics, uh, uh, you know, legislation that's tried to curb that in Springfield and, and Chicago over the years. But you will see former state reps and former state senators now working for big businesses and corporations going down to lobby their former colleagues. And that's something that has been at least on the forefront of, of advocates and and some lawmakers to say that that should probably be off limits because of the relationships. But it, it still happens uh, here and there. And you see these uh, state reps and, and politicians not necessarily going for higher office, but finding work in the private sector. Well, and and two, they can generally make a lot more money in the private sector. Yep. And after having just served, particularly for more than one term, you know, they've got every all the phone numbers. They know the way everything works. They know who, especially if they're hired to be a lobbyist, they know which of their former colleagues will be most receptive to a new idea or some legislation that either the a company wants or wants to kill. I mean, you know, for from 
from a personal and professional standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. But as as Justin was saying, you know, ethically, the con- the concern is that, you know, if you're especially if you're thinking about who you want to work for after the election. Well, I'm not going to I'm not going to pass this environmental legislation because, you know, hopefully, you know, when I uh, leave, I want to lobby for, I don't know, Dow Chemical and I don't want to make them mad. So it gets really the waters get a little murky. It really does. And and Illinois in the last couple of years has tried to crack down on that in different ways, but there's still a lot of loopholes and there's still a lot of places where, you know, uh, former politicians, former lawmakers get that work. I think you, you, one thing to pay attention to is that, you know, the map got redistricted at the census and and this is our first election with a new map. And then so we saw some districts get redistricted. We saw Adam Kinzinger, uh, you know, not have a home when when it was done. Uh, and, and other, you know, we see other, other, lawmakers in, in Congress having to find new wards or, or new districts and new constituents. So it'll be interesting to see as that plays out as two years kind of, you know, move ahead to 2024 to see if some of these prominent names in Illinois politics may take a run at newly, you know, minted districts that are that are in their infancy in, you know, this decade before the next census in 2030. Uh, so that that could be a place where you can see big names. I'm not saying that that's something that Jim Durkin has signaled to or Greg Harris has said they're interested in. But I do think that that is an area because it is you, you don't have these political stalwarts anymore that are in one district that you can't beat. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> in, in, instead, you get, you know, sort of fledgling new lawmakers or, or people who had won, you know, who were incumbents who, who barely won by the skin of their teeth uh, being a little weaker than they were before. Yeah. Um, we, you know, we only have about 60 seconds left, but what do you think would have to happen for Adam Kinzinger to throw his race, throw his hat in the presidential race? I don't think it's that. I mean, it, I think that if, if he feels that there's a spot for him to make waves, you know, when you're talking about running for president, it's not always about winning. <laughs> As we've mm-hmm. seen so many candidates play out, it may just be playing the foil, trying to, uh, or being, you know, being hired or, or, you know, recruited to be someone who's going to, to play to one constituency when you're talking about the primary. So I could definitely see it. I think he's got pretty big name recognition coming off of the December 6th panel and people know his work. Uh, Republicans do moderate Republicans. So I, I could see him definitely testing the waters depending on who gets in on the Republican side in 2024. Justin, it is always a delight to talk with you. Always. Thank you so much for spending part of uh, this day with us. And I will be looking forward to your newsletter in my email box tomorrow. It will be there, right? Yes, it will. <laughs> We're working on it now. <laughs> All right. That's good. All right. And say hello to Monica for me, please, as well. Will do. Well, we're going to take a break. We're going to be back with more politics right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Speaking of elections, weren't we? <laughs> Uh, February 28th, there will be an election. If you live in the city of Chicago, in addition to voting for various mayoral candidates, depending upon where you live, you will be voting for a new alder person. We're going to, we have been talking to some of the candidates and, uh, today we are happy to be joined by Anna Guajardo, who is a candidate for the 10th ward. Sue Sedlowski Garza is retiring from there. Anna, thank you for joining us. Hi, thank you for having me. So, first of all, tell me about the 10th Ward. 
Yes, well, if I could first just, I want to, um, can you hear me? Yes, uh-huh. Okay, hi. I just want to acknowledge, um, and as we celebrate Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. and his vast and profound legacy, as Dr. King gave us a vision for a generally free and equal society and devoted his life for fighting to achieve um, the glorious vision that he had. Um, but yes, I'm running for 10th Ward Alderwoman. It's located here in the south side of Chicago. Um, where we bordered the state of Indiana. So tell me about the people of that area. Who are they? What do they do for a living? Who are your voters? Um, so okay, thank you. I'm so sorry because I was having a bit of an issue to um, hear you. But oh. yes, here in the southeast side of Chicago, we have a majority of um, constituents that range from pretty a different ethnicity group from Latino, African-American, European, um, Croatian, Polish, um, just working class folks here in the southeast side of Chicago in the entire 10th Ward. Um, and so it's it's definitely a community that for many years was lifted through the steel plants being here. And over the years, unfortunately, um, with the decline of the steel plants closing, many um, opportunities and many businesses have left their community, leaving many workers having to go outside of our community to work. Um, and we're doing our part here to lift up the tenth word to ensure that we can bring back our community how it was back in the 70s and 80s when I was growing up here in the tenth ward. Tell us a little bit about your background. What have you been doing professionally? Yes, for the last 16 years, um, I started a non-for-profit here in the tenth ward, advocating for worker rights issues. Um, when Jay's Potato Chip Company decided to file bankruptcy, they are 400 plus union workers, Latino, African American workers, myself and others were talking to the workers, trying to advocate for them. And it just came to us this idea that why don't we start a nonprofit here instead of going to the north side looking for resources, let's start something here. And so we advocated. We were able to be housed at the basement of Our Lady Wellington Church. And since the inception of the organization 15 years ago, we were able to help recover over $2.5 million in stolen wages, um, in addition to continue to bring various programs to our community, like a parent-mentor program, where we brought over half a million dollars to the community, and we have parents in six different schools where we teach them to, you know, their teacher assistants working with the teachers and helping the children, um, as well as bringing other resources to our community, particularly during the pandemic. Um, we had, were already incubating two worker co-ops. One of them was a, a food catering co-op. And during the pandemic, we managed to bring in some funds to be able to provide over 15,000 hot meals to 10th Ward residents. Um, and they were delivered by our second co-op, which is now a cleaning co-op. And so that's part of the work that I've been doing um, as we started this incubator, um, ensuring that we can lift up our community. And if there's so much potential and ability from our leaders, why not provide them the resources? And so this incubator has helped us launch two women-led businesses, and we're also in the process of moving three more businesses in the 10th Ward. Um, so the idea is to be able to provide these resources, lift up our community, and be able to ensure that our workers and the folks who live here remain in our community. I'd like to go back to your first point where you said this organization helped workers recover $2.5 million in losses from wage theft. What is wage theft, and how did you help them recover this money? Yes. And so prior to actually starting the organization, I started, I was working for SEIU, Service Employees International Union, organizing the Justice for Janitors in Indiana. So when I came here to Chicago, I decided, you know, like, I'm going to use the work that I've done 
um, ensure that we can have a strategy when a worker loses his wages. So if, if he works and he's not paid or compensated for the time that he's worked, um, in many cases, these workers do not have the resources or the knowledge to know how they can advocate and make sure that their wages are recovered. When we started the organization in 2000, I believe it was in, a little bit after 2008, um, one worker came from a local um, grocery store who was getting paid $3 an hour. And so what we did is we worked with him and several other workers were able to join a class action lawsuit against this employer to make sure that the wages were recovered. And so when we talk about wage theft, it's pretty much work that you've done, but that you were not paid for. And so this is a large part of what I've been doing, um, making sure that we can lift up our community. I mean, and the workers who do the actual work can receive that money that they're owed. And do you, so you organize the court cases and help them through the entire process of, 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 of whatever legal means are necessary to get money that should be owed for time and work done that wasn't compensated the way it should have been. Yes, but we have a great relationship with many um, legal attorneys, labor attorneys. And so the way we handle these cases is when a worker comes to office, we provide the education, the knowledge, we analyze the case, we bring in the attorneys who provide the legal assistance, and we do the community organizing. And so most cases, um, a worker has a right to go to the Department of Labor, hire an attorney, a private attorney, or file a claim in small claims court, but it takes longer what we mm-hmm. do is make sure that we bring the attention to the employer in good faith, you know, try to work with them. And if things cannot resolve, then there are other measures that have to take place. But for us, the important part is to ensure that these workers feel empowered and that they're able to take ownership of their case and we're there just as the resources. And as a community organizer, one of the things that I've always learned is as an organizer, our job is to be behind the scenes and make sure that the people who are impacted by the issues are at the forefront of the case. And so that's what we do is we do the organizing aspect of the work. We lift up the worker, the attorneys do their part, and eventually we have some results. Also, another thing that you mentioned was uh, the work um, helping businesses start, business incubation. How do you how do you decide um, who to help out and, and what kind of help can you provide? Yeah, so um, back in 2003, um, what we were doing is we were actually have a very close relationship with a lot of these mom, mom and pop shops here in the, in the 10th Ward. And so we've actually worked with many of them. We actually provided training for a lot of these employers. Um, but a lot of our members that have gone through the organization, many of them have the potential and, and the, the skills to be able to start their businesses. And so what we started doing in 2014, 2015 is having intentional conversations internally as an organization and we were also able to partner with other colleagues to move state bill in the state of Illinois to actually get worker co-ops to be recognized. And so your typical um, business is owned by one employer who profits from all the, the the shares, right? And what we do is now we're actually launching worker co-ops, where it's a group of workers who are co-owners of the business and workers, and they have sharing pro- they share the profits from the business. And so. While we're also still working with these mom and pop shops here in the community, because it's also important to lift them up because they're also instrumental in our community, we're also incubating these businesses so they can also be in our community. But these are folks who have that experience and potential. And our job is to train them, train them on um, what it is to manage a business, how do you do the finances, um, how to, you know, the working relationship amongst your partners, 
um, and then bring those resources to them from the different government agencies or state agencies or even some of these private foundations so they can be able to start up their Uh businesses. And so that's the work that we've been doing, and it's been successful. And just so you know, John, we're in the process of finishing a community center. In 2014, a building was donated to us for $1 through the county land bank program. We started construction in 2015. Unfortunately, with the change of administration, our state grant was held back for several years. Um, And last year, with the support of Senator Peters, we were able to recover $1 million from the state. And we started construction two months ago. And so in three months, we're going to have the first of its kind community center here in the 10th ward, which is going to provide all of the office space for all of the programs, labor, immigration, economic justice, education. Um, We're also building a community garden. And in the basement of our facility, we have an incubator where these small, these worker co-ops can actually have, you know, the space you know, for their training facility, but they also were going to be building an industrial kitchen, which we're going to be, you know, using as a shared kitchen where several of these small businesses or others who wish to use the shared kitchen can use it so they can be able to launch their businesses. And so this is an approach that we have to be able to, you know, build community and let the community know that we're here. It's a center. It's a space that will be open to everyone. And this is just one step of being able to bring in more businesses in our, into our community Um, So we can also make sure that we maintain everyone here locally. You said that there was a problem at the state level. What happened? So when there was a change in the administration from Governor Quinn um, to Governor Rauner, our grant was suspended um, after the new administration took office. And so um, and so another thing we can thank Bruce Rauner for. (laughs) Well, um, yeah, so it took me. But we were actually even though our grant was suspended, um, it took me um, several years to be able to get another capital grant, but in between those years, we actually worked with several labor unions who were donating their time to keep at least the building moving slowly, and so we're very grateful for that support. And we also had several leaders who were outside helping us maintain the building, um, so we, you know, so it could still be at least somewhat up to par. Um, but this is why I'm also running, because we need to be able to make sure that we bring in the resources, people who know how to bring in the resources to our community, because as I mentioned earlier, there's so much potential here. If we just do our part and make those connections, there's so much more that we can do to lift up the 10th board. And I grew up here in the 19, late 1970s, early 80s, and I remember walking down the streets of commercial, of Ewing, of um, Brandon, like this entire 10th ward was so vibrant. That's what I see. That's what I would love to see. And I know that there's potential. And I know that with the ability and the, as organizers and, and with our partners, we can do so much more to lift up this community. <laughs> if you live in the 10th ward, Anna Guajardo is going to be on your ballot February 28th as your potential new alder. We're going to take a real quick break and continue our conversation with her right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I am joined by Anna Guajardo. She is running to be the next alder in the 10th Ward. Anna, you have done so much. You have accomplished so much working with government from the private sector and so much for the people of the 10th Ward. What is it that makes you want to jump into public life? Yes, and thank you for that. Um, there, there's many reasons. Um, you know, as a mother of two daughters that go to CPS, 
I'm very concerned about a lot of these things that happen in our community. Um, you know, I, I grew up in this community. Um, I saw, you know, I'm seeing my daughters as they're growing up in the community. I'm also uh, volunteering at our my daughter's school, and I also see, like, the importance of our children and not just mine, but others in our community to also be able to receive the support that they need. Um, and so there's many reasons why I decided to run, but more than anything, I'm at the point, as you mentioned, in my life where I've done 20 plus years of community organizing, working with the unions, starting this nonprofit, advocating for immigrant rights issues as well, that, you know, I feel that there's much more that I can do, in the, you know, as a legislator um, to be able to move things in city council. I've also had quite a bit of experience moving state bills in Springfield, advocating for worker rights issues. And I just feel that, you know, being as an elected official, as the next elder woman of the 10th Ward, I can use what I've done in the past and be able to apply it. Um, but I see so much other st- efforts and, and commun- you know, needs in our community that need to be lifted. There's so much issues like public safety um, that's happening in our community that we have to make sure that we lift up. You know, I have a plan uh, for a vision that I would love to see implemented here in the 10th Ward. So we can also um, be able to cover this issue as, as something that I'm hearing from a lot of our constituents. Um, and in that plan in itself, just briefly, you know, we need to invest more in, in our officer wellness and make sure that the police officers who are currently working are not working 29 to 30, not 30 hours a, uh, in a row without having a day off. Uh, we need to make sure that, the, you know, that there's a response to emergencies with appropriate response, appropriate services. Um, you know, a lot of the... Uh, the emergency calls are made. Um, it sometimes our officers are outside of the community. We need to make sure that they're in our community. Um, you know, there's so much that we also need to do on mental health services. We need to invest in more services in the tenth ward, so that our residents can receive the you know the needs you know have the needs met. Um, as well as um, we need to have more dedicated patrols um, in our community. Um, you know, back in the 80s, I recall the B cops. I'm walking down our business corridor um, and the importance of that also building trust with the businesses and also with community residents. And so those are just a few things that I'm hearing in addition to like education, which is very important for, for our, like our parents, right, and our children to make sure that they, they have the resources, the schools have the resources necessary so our children can receive the education that they need. You do realize that when you get into city council, getting things done is going to be a little trickier, even than the the paths you've had to navigate getting things done in your neighborhood. Yeah, but you you know what? Everything that I've done, I mean, if I've managed in the past 20 years to tackle on so many issues that people thought could not be done, I have faith, Joan. And I, I really have faith. And as an organizer, you know, like I have develop the skill to be able to work with other people. Like, I want to sit down folks who have not been talking to each other. I want to be able to bring them to the table, but not just the folks who are experienced. Like, we have to bring in the people who are impacted by the issues. Also in the table, having the conversations with the legislators so they can hear from them. Like, having the people who are impacted by these issues is important. And I think that's sometimes what we leave out. Many legislators or many folks who are, are putting together policies, like, bring those folks to the table. They need to be heard. And when we've done the organizing here in the tenth ward, we always made sure they were workers or if it was immigration, it was the folks who were impacted by the issues at the forefront because that's a way of getting them involved. And if we really want to lift up our community, we also have to come together as a community. We, ha- we have the ability to lift up the tenth ward if we just unite. 
And I have faith, Joan. I know it can be done. And based on my part, it may take a while. And, you know, I'm not going to say it's perfect either in City Hall, but I at least have the energy, I have the experience, and I know I have the ability to be able to get things done in City Hall. Uh, spoken like somebody who is ready to legislate on day one. <laughs> Tell me, in addition to the nonprofit sort of community-based work you've been doing, you're also a veteran. Talk to me about that. Yes, when um, when I was, I'm the middle child, um, and when I was in the process of looking for what, you know, what college to go to or university, um, my father had a conversation with me and, and the rest of us, and he said, you know, we can't afford a university. And so what I ended up doing as one of the recruiters came to our high school is I ended up joining the military because I wanted to further my education. And with the military, I was able to go to Chicago State University where I got my undergrad in political science and minor in business. And through there, I'm very fortunate that I was able to um, be part of the MacArthur Foundation where I became a MacArthur Fellow. That, and they sent me to the University of Minnesota to get my master's in public policy. And out of the class of 200, instead of going into policy work, I actually went to work for SEIU, Service Employees International Union, um, here in Chicago, and then I was transferred to Indianapolis. And I'm very grateful for all the opportunities because the military opened many doors and it also helped me to be a little bit more disciplined um, and see the importance of, and that's another issue that I feel we need to, here in the 10th floor, we probably have the largest number of veterans in our community. What else can we do for our veterans? There's much more we can do. Like We have to find the resources to make sure that our veterans receive what they deserve. They gave up, many of them gave up their life for this country. Let's give back. Let's look into other policies. Let's look into any resources that they need to make sure that they also receive what they deserve. The candidates who are with you in this race uh, to be the next alder for the 10th Ward, um, it's um, they're all Hispanic. So just the fact of your heritage doesn't really set you apart. Um, what does set you apart from the other candidates? It's the work that I've done, you know, like uh, some other stuff that I managed to do during my last 16 years here in the 10th Ward under the organization. Um, we have a citizenship program. We've helped hundreds of legal permanent residents become citizens. We have a legal clinic, and once we have our center built, we're going to have office space where it's going to amplify. Instead of servicing more than 1,000 to 2,000 folks in our community, we're going to be able to expand those resources. You know, and I'm also a mother, um, you know, and as a mother, I'm doing my best to also to be more involved in my children's education. And so I think what really separates me from the other candidates, it's the 20-plus years of work that I've done, and 16th of those years have been directly here in the 10th Ward. When you get to city council, which city council members do you see yourself aligning with? Which caucuses do you see yourself being a part of? You know, at, at the moment, I haven't gotten that far. Uh, I'm focused on trying to win this election. However, I'm welcome to see what each caucus can offer. You know, I'm not about just joining a caucus for the sake of joining it. I want to know which caucuses are really there to be able to provide the services or work together to be able to ensure that we can lift up our communities. Um, but there are several other caucuses that I've been um, looking into, like Progressive Caucus. You know, there's also um, others that may potentially I may be interested in. But I think more than anything, my job is not there to, to represent the caucus. My job is to represent the 10th Ward, but also the entire city of Chicago. When you've been out and about, Anna. Talking to the voters of the 10th Ward, 
What have people said are their concerns? Yeah, public safety is um, number one that I've been hearing, which is why I've, I've been thinking through a lot of plan in terms of how we can respond to that. Um, education is second, making sure that our like our schools um, receive the resources that they need, our children, um, after school programs. There's so much more that we can do here in our community. So those are our top two jobs. It's another issue that I've been hearing tremendously. Um, there's a lot of like crime rates have increased, but how do we also make sure that we have the folks in our community working, employed, um, but that are good paying jobs? And who uh, is supporting your candidacy right now? Where are you getting your funds? And uh, have you gotten any endorsements you want to tell us about? Yes, no, I've, I've been endorsed by um, Chewy, Jesus Chewy Garcia, who's running for mayor. Um, he's someone who mentored me for many years. I've known him for the last 16 years. I've been currently endorsed by Elder Woman Solowski Garza here in the 10th Ward. Um, I have more than 23 union endorsements, but I won't name them all. But I, um, Chicago Federation of Labor, ASME 31 just endorsed my campaign, SCIU State Council in addition to the three, IBW Local 134. Um, we have um, the roofers, we have the carpenters, there's um, Chicago Region Council of Carpenters, there's several others that have endorsed the campaign. Wonderful. I'm very grateful for the support. You must feel like you've got a lot of momentum going right now. I do, but you know, I think what's more important for me um, is also seeing like our volunteers who have, you know, for many years seen the work that I've done and have been out here with me, whether it's been collecting signatures, door knocking, making phone calls, having house meetings, you know, like I would not be here if it wasn't for them. And I think that's something that we we miss or we forget, um, but we should always acknowledge and recognize those who help us get into these seats. And, and so I'm very appreciative for everything that they've done in addition to with the organization. I mean, we've had, I've had several of my community members who throughout the last 16 years have never left us, you know, have always been there making sure that we can lift up the organization and everything else that's been happening here in the 10th Ward. Well, I wish you the best. Where can people, do you have a website people can find more information about you? Yes, um, we have our website, which is wwwana 4 com, but you spell the A-N-A-F-O-R, the number 10.com. They can find us on Facebook. They can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and obviously our website. Ana Guajardo running to be the next alder in Chicago's 10th Ward. Thank you for joining us, and it has been a delight getting to know you, and I wish you the best. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. I appreciate it. You have a good day. You too. We are going to take a break for news. We're going to be back with Terry Savage right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive. Quite frankly, I get most of my news from you. Joan Esposito. Y'all ready for this? On WCPT 820. You read her columns in the Chicago Tribune. Maybe you've bought her books. They're great. Um, or you maybe you've even sent her a question uh, at uh, terrysavage.com. She is, of course, my favorite go-to person to explain what is going on financially in the world. Terry Savage joins us again. Hello, Terry. Hello. Good to be with you in this new year. 
It is. It is a wonderful uh, time to start off 2023 with a conversation with you. Um, okay. Debt ceiling. Uh, Janet Yellen said, I think that it's Thursday that our heads are going to be hitting the debt ceiling. And uh, what's going on and what do we need to do about it? Well, the first, don't panic, you know, keep calm and carry on. It's unthinkable, unthinkable that the U.S. would default on its debt. However, the debt ceiling let me put it this way. The debt that we refinance all the time, the Treasury bills, notes and bonds, IOUs of the federal government, just depending on the maturity, short-term Treasury bills, medium-term notes and longer-term bonds, are, are the, most, the best credit in the, the whole, on the whole planet. And it's unthinkable that the U.S. will default. But as long as Congress wants to play political games, the last time we had a sort of a crisis like this, I remember back in 2011 when it was a political football and they came down to the wire and there were absolutely dire threats. I don't believe there were any delays, but that the military wouldn't get paid on time and that then they couldn't pay their rent and they couldn't, I mean, of all things, the military and seniors. Uh, the question was, would Social Security get paid? You must understand, we refinanced the debt we have already incurred. This is not about new spending, per se. This is about the fact that both Republican and Democrat administrations uh, raised the debt levels by about 8 trillion dollars over the last five, six, seven years. What do you think all those stimulus checks were all about and all those extra unemployment benefits? We paid those out. We borrowed the money to do so. Now we are bumping up against the debt ceiling and the ordinary course of business and all those previous things we spent the money on, we have to keep financing. They won't, they won't default. You keep saying that you're so confident. Why are you so confident? Because whatever party caused the default or whatever six Congress people, men and women, which is more likely to be the case, would be would reap the rage of every single one of us who's collecting Social Security. Now, that includes me, would reap the rage of the military who protect our country and can't pay their their bills, can't buy groceries because they don't get a paycheck. Those are the kinds of impacts uh, a default would have, not to mention everybody who's uh, who's invested in the markets. I mean, it would collapse the stock market. It would it would really cause a massive economic hit, uh, slowdown. It's just it's really truly unthinkable. But Terry, I was glued to my couch that Friday when there was vote after vote after vote in the House of Representatives. And it seemed that the Matt Gateses and the Lauren Boberts didn't really care about the consequences of their action. They just seemed to want to create some kind of a media circus. They wanted to make people miserable. And it wasn't like they were holding out because there was a something that they wanted and they wanted to make sure happened yeah, they were or a belief. It was so yeah, why do you think they children. won't do the same with the whole government? Because at some point, their constituents, the people that voted them into office, will stop being sheep following their, or whatever it is that runs across a herd of whatever it is that goes right off the edge of the cliff and will stop and say, wait a minute, 
we thought that was very cool that you were standing on principle and we really applauded you until we were threatened with, we don't get our social security checks. We don't get government benefits. Our bills for Medicare aren't being paid. Hospitals postpone surgeries because Medicare is not reimbursing. And on and on and on, it will be just a, a, a rolling collapse of the economy and it will hit their constituents. And finally, the American public will say enough of the circus. But the circus, I predict, will go on until the very last minute and maybe a minute past the last minute because that's what our Congress has become. Both, And I'm going to tell you both political parties um, have had a hand in creating this debt. And it, it's just, you're right. Some are standing on principle. I think the speaker is talking about finally getting some concessions on spending. Sadly, the concessions he's talking about are on things like Social Security um, or other programs. Those are the kinds of things that really will come back and hit them in the face if they push it over the edge. Okay, and and where is the cliff? Because first I was reading that it's Thursday, and then Janet Yellen said something about how she's going to take certain measures to, I don't know, delay it or soften it, and well, I'm... I'm... <laughs> Yeah, picture you're a household, and all, I mean, picture. And guess what? This is happening to a lot of American households. This is the week the credit card bills come in from all that spending, and you put them all out on the kitchen table, and you go, "Wait, what are we going to pay first? Wait, we have to pay the heat; it's cold. Well, wait, we have to pay, but we have to pay the mortgage. We don't want to be out on the street, etc." And so you dance around and move things around. What Janet Yellen can move around is the uh, pension funds for civil service and for the postal service have money coming in out of the paychecks of every worker, government worker, you know, their pension contributions. Uh, What she has said is, well, what we'll do is we won't just, as we would ordinarily, invest that money in the pension fund based on our parameters of investing. We'll just hang on to that cash. We'll use it to keep refinancing our debt. And then at some point when they come to their senses and we raise the debt limit, uh, the debt ceiling, the money, we'll put the money back in the pension funds. So there are they're just doing the, you know, the, the the shell game trick of moving money from here to there. Now, at some point, and that point is probably in June, there's no more fooling around. There's no more money coming in, and something's got to give. So it's either paychecks for government workers, it's uh, Social Security checks. I hope that they that you know that they don't drag this out till June. That's not good for any. You know what? It's really not good for. It's not good for the stock market, which hates uncertainty. And everybody's, you know, got an IRA rollover, a 401k. We'd like to see the market rebound this year. We'd like to not go into a recession. The Fed's already pulling that string. We'd like to see economic growth resume, inflation slow. We're pretty well on our way to getting there, and maybe the Fed will be able to ease up. But if this kind of a thing is in the headlines for the next three months, you can be sure the stock market's going to plunge. So even though Thursday was thrown out as an initial cliff, Janet Yellen, if I understand you correctly, has said that she is going to move some money around and that buys us till June? Probably till the beginning. You know what this reminds me of? You ever get, you remember having young kids? If you don't do that by the count of three, you are, I'm going to start counting now. One, 
two, two and a half, <laughs> two and three quarters. You know, you never get to three. And it's kind of that kind of um, threat. But the, the consequences, if you do get to three, if you do get to the moment of we're up against it finally and there's no more finagling available, then the consequences are widespread across the economy. But on the other hand, what I don't want to say is, and I, first of all, as I started to say, you, this isn't going to happen. And I've had intelligent people, people I know, I mean, aside from readers whom I don't know, but people I know and who are smarter than that say to me, well, should I move my money out of T-bills and into CDs? A woman who I know, I said, wait a minute. What, why, what makes you think that t- CDs might be, they're insured by FDIC, which is the government, which is the same government that borrows money and uses its credit to insure treasury bills. I mean, the whole thing is thrown into a cataclysmic mess if they actually get to the point of a default. It would cost so much more money in the future to borrow money. Foreign central banks own a huge portion of our national debt, and they would demand higher interest rates to lend us money if they were worried about defaults. So you could see interest rates, you know, soar just because people, we need money and people wouldn't, Ford central banks wouldn't buy T-bills, much less you and I. So I don't have to panic this week. I don't think you're ever going to need to panic. I, I, I think it's outrageous and horrible. But a lot of our politics is outrageous and horrible. I mean, so much of it I can't, let me count the ways. But I'm quite sure that when push comes to shove, there will not be a default. They will continue paying Social Security and they will continue paying the military. So shame on them for for playing games with this. Well, you know, Terry, I was reading something this morning that said this could be the start of World War III. That if we default on our debt, the world economy collapses, you know, dogs and cats living together. Listen, listen, listen. We are not going to default on our debt. I mean, there are a lot of things in this universe to worry about, which I don't spend a lot of time worrying about, but are real possibilities. Like an asteroid could hit Earth. That would be that. Um, You know, someone could make a mistake. Korea. I mean, uh, sorry, uh, North Korea could make a mistake and do something stupid. A lot of stupid things could happen, but you don't waste your time thinking about them because it doesn't do any good. And it doesn't do any good panicking about this because we have 435 people in Congress who are going to vote. And in the end, they can't possibly be that dumb. And the dummies will get outvoted or recalled by their electorate. Terry, we need to take a break. I'm speaking with uh, financial maven Terry Savage. You can find out more at Terry at TerrySavage.com. We'll be right back after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I'm joined by Terry Savage. You can read her columns in the Chicago Tribune. You can go to TerrySavage.com to see her work. And uh, she has kind of just talked me off the ledge. Honestly, Terry, I was thinking, just sell everything and stick the money under my mattress, put, put my head down, and wait for this ship to right itself. No, but- no, this is America. This We've been through this before. I'll tell you, if you want to worry about debt, the real concern about debt right now is consumer credit card debt. Consumer credit card debt 
took its largest jump, percentage jump, in 20 years in the second half of last year. Card balances rose more than 15% from 2021. Remember, during the pandemic, everybody, in, in general, the statistical thing was people got money, they got stimulus money, but they also couldn't go out and shop. They were buying groceries, of course, online, but they, they were pent up, and so the the debt, consumer debt, had plunged. And people said, yeah, I'm never going to charge up my credit cards again. Well, they did in the second half of this year. And um, in the third quarter, there was just a historic jump. And the latest numbers from Lending Trees study, holidays, average holiday debt sparked to the highest level since tracking began in 2015. Okay? Um, the average debt reached taken on reached 1,549, up 24% from the previous year. So what's happening now is consumers are going to be dealing with their debt. I think that's a much more significant thing and much more to worry about um, now as the bills come in. And, uh, you know, they're, they're, I just posted a column about the choices you have. Um, first of all, and let me give you three Terry's tips. Number one, if you pay only the minimum monthly payment, it's going to take you 30 years to pay off that debt. And along the way, you'll pay four times as much as you charged in interest. But if you take this month's bill and double the minimum, so if it was $25, you make it $50. You write that number down and every single month pay that same amount, that $50, the double this month's minimum, and you don't charge another penny, you will pay off your credit card in less than three years. Now, some people have a lot higher minimums. It could be $100, $250 minimums and so forth. It's hard to double that. But otherwise, you're fooling yourself. There is one way you can get some breathing room, and that is to use a balance transfer card. And that gives you maybe 18 months of 0% interest. You transfer the balance, assuming your credit is not ruined already. And, but I will tell you that the minute the end of that 18 months grace period comes, the rate will jump to something like 28, 29%. Many people are paying that already. When you but talk about during, these transfers, are you talking about taking out a brand new credit card? Yeah, I'll tell you how you do that. You go okay. to a website called creditcards.com and right on the homepage it says best balance. It talks about all different kinds of cards, cards for miles, cards for points, but there's a category called balance transfer cards. So if your credit is good, yeah, they'll take your, you know, 2900 or $15,212 in balances over to that new card. You're probably paying 22, 23% now. They'll give you 18 months, but that's when you really have to pay down that debt because in 18 months, then the rate will jump to 28, 29%. So a balance transfer card is a temporary option. And the final option I'm gonna give you is a toll-free number that must be engraved in my brain, and I bring it back every time we get into a crunch. It's the National Foundation for Credit Counseling, uh, 800-388-2227. I'm going to post that prominently at terrysavage.com because that's going to be a, a big problem coming up. 800-388-2227. You can trust them. This is not one of those, oh, stop paying your bills, we'll negotiate with your creditors, deals that always ruins your credit more. You have to go to reputable people to get credit counseling. But so don't. this... Eight hundred number. Um, yeah. When, like, let's say I've got a lot of credit card debt. I call them up, 
and they will like sort of put together a plan for me like you know they'll do like- two things they'll, they'll actually do three things the first is they'll just talk to you and work through a budget with you and see if there's a way you can pay down this debt uh, and and not go into a repayment program the second thing they can do is talk to your creditors get them to agree sometimes they won't lower the amount you owe particularly but they may wipe out some of the past interest and they will come agree to accept uh, a payment you send one monthly payment to this agency by the way that 800 number I'll repeat it again in a minute connects you to the nearest local member agency of the National Foundation for Credit Counseling people you can trust so they set up a repayment plan you may give them a check for X um, amount and they'll dole it out to your creditors and as a last resort they will let you know if the only alternative is bankruptcy and sadly for many seniors who who've just by virtue of prices going up and so forth that's the fastest growing category of bankruptcies and will happen again as the economy slows uh, living on fixed incomes not able to take another weekend job or something to earn extra money because that was my first solution you know you could pay it down just there's still people looking for help in restaurants and so forth get another job yeah I don't care if you're a young executive go out and work weekends as a waiter and then you can put the extra money to paying it down but we have bankruptcy court here we don't have debtors prisons so that might be the worst alternative so when Jerome Powell raises the feds rate does that mean that you should check the rate on your credit card do will credit card rates fluctuate with the fed credit card rates have been interest rates have been rising the national average rate now is 19 and a half percent many people with good credit who rarely um, use the credit have cards that still charge only seven or eight percent those will probably go up too but it's not so much yeah, the higher level of interest rates empowers banks, uh, lenders of all kinds to raise interest rates. But they know when you're hooked. When you're hooked and you can't pay off your debt, don't forget, you are only dealing with XYZ Visa. But Visa takes a look at your credit report, and which you should do too. And they say, oh my goodness. She's got a balance on our visa, but she's also got a balance on a MasterCard, and she's carried that for a long time, and now she's got another balance. Um, Then they know you're trapped, and yep, they grab you and they raise your rate. That's for sure. Wow. David Hochberg um, has told us from time to time that if you want to raise your credit score, the best thing to do is to pay off your credit card every week if you can. Go online, log into it, and pay it off every week. And he said then you can boost your credit score over a period of time if you do that. Do you recommend that as well? I recommend paying it off before the end of the month. Okay. You know, one of the things that, that they look at is the balances you carry. So I, even, I watch my credit score through Credit Karma, and every once in a while I'll get a, a note, your score has dipped two points, my score is pretty high. And that's because I charged something very big, and I haven't gotten a, the bill hasn't come yet, and I haven't gotten around to paying it. So yes, I suppose I could impact my credit score by two or three points if I paid it off the day after I charged it. But the point of charging something, for me typically, is to get miles and to 
you know, every Monday I sit up to sit down and pay things off. So, yeah, theoretically, the real thing, though, for most people is don't carry a balance. Pay it off on time and in full. If you have a balance, make a dent in it. Your credit score is only important to you if you're about to um, apply for new credit, which you don't want to do if you're already in debt, buy a house, maybe life insurance, they check your credit scores. Uh, those are the kinds of auto insurance, surely checks credit scores. So you want a very high credit score, but mostly what you want to do is be out of debt. And by the way, always keep, pay down your longest held card. Because one thing you can't finagle with is, as a part of your credit score, is how long your credit history is. So even if that's not the card you use most because it doesn't give you enough points or it's not what you, you know, you're trying to collect on, use that card once a month, pay it off in full, and that's your long credit history that counts a lot uh, when things get down to do we make a loan or not. Sounds good. Okay. You always have such great advice, and I actually understand what you're saying, which in my case is kind of a miracle. Um, thank you so much, my dear. It is delightful to talk to you, and we are overdue for a dinner. Yes, soon. Yes. Gary Savage, uh, we are now going to take a break. We are going to come back right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. Well, now that Terry Savage has told me that I don't have to uh, worry about World War III or don't have to put all my money under the mattress, I don't know about you, but uh, that makes me breathe a sigh of relief. However, do I think she might be a little bit more confident in our lawmakers than I am? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Now, if she if I understood her correctly and the, we can um, push this whole issue of the debt ceiling off till June, well, that could that could give us time for the quote unquote moderates in uh, Congress to beat back their more radical brothers and sisters once and for all. Because uh, in the short term right now, it is the tail that seems to be wagging the dog. And Kevin McCarthy, in his epic quest to be Speaker of the House, well, some are wondering if he gave the store away. Even some of the Republicans who've been talking about this publicly say that they are not sure over and above the document that was circulated and what they voted on, they're not sure what, if any, behind-the-scenes promises Kevin McCarthy might have been made to people. And, you know, Terry seems to think that cooler heads will prevail. I, uh, oh, God, I so want to be on that team and say that the grown-ups you know, will assert themselves. But um, who knows? At that point, Kevin McCarthy might not even be Speaker of the House. I mean, last week on the floor of the House of Representatives, Jim McGovern, 
He's a Democrat from Massachusetts, uh, was formerly the head of the Rules Committee. You know, the rules by which everything gets done. He is still the ranking member of the Rules Committee, even though Kevin McCarthy apparently promised to throw Eric Swalwell and um, Adam Schiff off of of their committee positions. Uh, Jim McGovern seems to, at least for now, be hanging in there. He's still on the Rules Committee, and he is the one with the most experience. But he will, of course, no longer be heading that committee. He went on the floor of the House of Representatives, and he voiced not only Democrats' fears, but the fears of some Republicans as well. Listen to this. What I'm concerned about is not just what's written down here. I'm concerned by the backroom deals that Speaker McCarthy made with the Freedom Caucus in exchange for their votes. Like Republican Congresswoman Nancy Mace said just this weekend, and I quote, we don't have any idea what promises were made. Is this what the uh, majority leader meant when he talked about a new day and transparency? You know, these rules are not a serious attempt at governing. They're essentially a ransom note to America from the extreme right. The same members of Congress who held this body hostage last week are the ones who ran interference for the January 6th insurrectionists who tried to overturn a free and fair election. And even the new Speaker of the House voted to overturn the 2020 elections. Um, We couldn't even get a public acknowledgement from him on the two-year anniversary of that horrific day, not even a tweet. It is clear that Republicans welcomed the election deniers into their ranks with open arms, and now they are reaping what they have sown. The insurrectionists are in charge. That's how it seems right now. That's absolutely how it seems right now, because it wasn't that Lauren Boebert and Matt Gates and Gosar, I guess, eventually changed his vote. But it wasn't like that they were holding out for an ideal or a program or a stance that they wanted Kevin McCarthy to get behind. It seemed to just be an opportunity for them to humiliate Kevin McCarthy, for them to remind Kevin McCarthy that he has no power without them. And if that isn't the tail wagging the dog, and you know that Nancy Mace he was just talking about, she said that, she said that publicly. She was like, you know, we're going to be voting on rules, but we don't really know everything that was promised. And remember, I told you this last week. There were legislative aides who told reporters that they had seen a three-page document with various promises that Kevin McCarthy had made to the far-right members. Not just one aide told reporters this, but there were multiple aides who told reporters they had seen this three pages of promises. So what did the reporters do? Of course, they asked Kevin McCarthy about it. And what did he say? He said, no such document exists. This is where we are, folks. (sighs) Terry Savage understands what not raising the debt ceiling means. And, you know, it isn't just our economy. We won't be able to pay our veterans. We won't be able to pay Social Security. We won't be able to pay the bills for Medicare and on and on and on. 
And if we default on our debt, that that's going to affect the world economies that do business with us. That's why the person I was reading this morning was predicting that if you if you continue to look as the dominoes fall, we can't pay our bills. You know, we can't enter into financial agreements. We're defaulting, bringing down other governments with us. And they said, and you get far enough down the line and you're talking about complete political destabilization. Destabilization. And that was why the person said, you know, that's a scenario where we really could see World War Three. Can you believe it? I was certainly frightened. I couldn't I couldn't believe it. Anyway, I want to end this day the way we began it. This is uh, the Martin Luther King Jr. federal holiday. Um, banks and uh, federal and municipal buildings, for the most part, are all closed today. Some schools um, are closed. Some aren't. Some businesses are closed. Some aren't. It isn't... Um, a required holiday. But if you're going to be going out somewhere, check before you go. If you're one of the people who had today off, great. I hope you did something that brought you joy, and I hope you did something that honored the day, whether it is to go to one of the many ceremonies honoring this day, Maybe you went to a local bookstore and picked up a book. Um, I would recommend Ibram X. Kendi's How to Be an Anti-Racist, which I know has been out for quite a while, but I just recently read it and was blown away. And um, maybe it's a time to just, you know, you don't have any other plans to do anything. Spend five or ten minutes on YouTube. Go on YouTube and listen to some of Dr. King's speeches. I guarantee you, even though you think you have a memory, kind of of what they constituted, you have got to hear them again to remember how this man could move a room and move a movement. He really was amazing. We are going to take a break, and um, I'm going to share one of the excerpts from one of Dr. King's speeches that just brought me chills when I listened to it this morning. We'll be back right after this. Joan Esposito, live, local, and progressive on WCPT 820. I do want to talk about uh, Martin Luther King Day, but one little bit of... uh, Political polling that I think you'll find interesting. The Senate race. Remember, um, what's her name? Oh, yeah, Kirsten Cinema. She is going to have to defend her seat. And uh, Carrie Lake, uh, you know, who really gives TV anchor people a bad name. Um, the Carrie Lake who lost her bid for governor. Uh, Carrie Lake, all in MAGA. 
Carrie Lake, she of the never do an interview without a filter. God knows what she looks like in real life. Carrie Lake. Yeah, she is rumored to be exploring her Republican options to run for that Senate seat that Kirsten Cinema is um, not going to be holding on to too much longer. Ruben Gallego is a Democrat who has all but declared he's hiring people. He's, you know, he's obviously getting ready to make a run at, at Kirsten Cinema from the Democratic side. Nobody is officially in the race as of yet, but the polling shows exactly what some of us were afraid of. Now, Carrie Lake, she's wackadoodle, and maybe she's wackadoodle enough that these numbers will shift. But right now, if there was Carrie Lake, Ruben Gallego, and Kirsten Cinema in the race, I don't even want to say this. Looks like Carrie Lake would win it because even though she and Ruben Gallego would be close in their vote totals, it is believed that Kirsten Cinema could siphon them. She doesn't have a shot of winning, but she potentially could siphon off enough Democratic votes to keep Ruben uh, Gallego from winning. So that's a race that, as uh, this evolves, we're just really going to have to keep an eye on. But it is, it is Martin Luther King Day. It is a day when we acknowledge that the struggle for racial equity and equality in this country is still ongoing <laughs> and uglier than ever. But we have made strides. You know, we really have. There are no longer whites only or Negro drinking fountains. We have Hakeem Jeffries in Congress leading the Democrats. There has been progress. You know, there was a soundbite that I played at the beginning of the show today where um, Martin Luther King urged his followers to keep the faith, to stay nonviolent, to stay in the fight. We played his a portion, just a, a couple of minutes of his I've been to the mountaintop speech where he almost seems to predict the fact that he's not going to be around too much longer. And indeed, he delivered that speech April 3rd, 1968. And the very next day, he was assassinated. Go to YouTube. And you know what? There's another, there's a publication called The Insider, insider insider.com. If you go to insider.com, slash speeches-martin-luther-king-jr. A whole six or seven or eight different speeches that he made come up. And a lot of them are ones you've never heard before. You know, he made a speech after Rosa Park refused to give up her her seat on the bus. He was around for a long time, 
and promoted nonviolence everywhere he went. In March of 1965, three years before he was assassinated, Martin Luther King Jr. marched with 25,000 people from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery, Alabama. It was a march to fight for African-American voting rights. I know what you're thinking. It's a fight that is still going on as Republicans of our most recent era figured out that black people don't vote for them in the kind of numbers they need. So instead of finding a way to reach them, let's just keep them from voting. It's still going on. You know, Stacey Abrams, Jason Kander with Let America Vote, our good friend Greg Pallast looking into all the voter suppression in Georgia. It's still going on. At the culmination of that march with 25,000 other people from Selma, Alabama to Montgomery, Alabama, the Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. gave what is known as his Our God is Marching On speech. This speech, now historians say, was a turning point in the civil rights movement. It was a speech where Dr. King not only continued the focus on legal rights and political rights, but he also started talking about economic equality. At the end of this speech, Dr. King used what's referred to as a call and response technique. You hear it sometimes in churches. But this is a speech, like I've been to the mountaintop, that is truly iconic. It is truly amazing. This is just a little bit of it. I want to share it with you now. Listen to this. I know you're asking today, how long will it take? Somebody's asking, how long will prejudice blind the visions of men? I come to say to you this afternoon, however difficult the moment, yes, sir. however frustrating the hour, it will not be long because truth crushed earth will rise again. How long, not long. Because no lie can live forever. How long, not long. Because you shall reap what you sow. How long, not long. Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. That scaffold sways the future. Behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. How long? Not long. Because the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends toward justice. How long? Not long. Because mine eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He's trampling out the village where the grapes of wrath are stored. He's loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on. He has sounded forth the trumpet that shall never call retreat. He is lifting out the hearts of men before his judgment seat. Oh, be swift, my soul, to answer him. Be jubilant, my feet. Our God is marching on. Glory, hallelujah. Glory, hallelujah. 
amazing, huh? And from his I Have a Dream speech, which I shared with you a little earlier, it's where he said that I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will be judged, well, they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. Maybe it's just for today, maybe it's just for one day. But if we can all just take a breath today and think about these things, think about where we want to go as a nation. One of the things that Martin Luther King Jr. said was we don't want to give the haters more hate. We want to give them love. I think about this in terms of when we, either in our family or in another social situation, find ourselves in discussion with somebody who clearly is racist or homophobic or just politically naive or ignorant. It's hard. It's hard to offer love to somebody like that. It's hard to offer understanding to somebody like that. Best advice I've gotten on this radio show is find something that you both agree on and start there. It doesn't even it doesn't have to be political. It doesn't have to be involved in any kind of ideology. This was um, advice that I've heard over and over again. Find something you can agree on and start there. And maybe, just maybe, if you can make that human connection, you can open up that person to hearing one or two other ideas that you have. It's hard. (laughs) It's really hard. But I'm going to try to make the effort going forward. I am going to try not to just walk away, not to just roll my eyes, and not to write somebody off. I'm going to try to find that common ground. And I hope maybe in honor of this day, if even if only for this day, you'll do the same thing. That is going to do it for me. Um, Driving at Home with Patty Vasquez is up next. I will see you tomorrow at 2 o'clock. Remember, Patty, Santita, and I... We are all giving away pairs of tickets so that you can join our mayoral forum live and in person on the 26th. Take care, my friends. Stay safe. I'll see you tomorrow at 2. Good night.